0: Becoming an industrialist, or like you know, becoming someone who actually manufactures something uh, at scale and creates an ethical. Uh product that people enjoy and doesn't necessarily harm the world but does better it's not something that uh, fills me with a lot of joy Uh, and it's something that i you know i want to do and i want to do for the rest of my life
1: welcome to the business for good podcast a show where we spotlight companies making money by making the world a better place i'm your host paul shapiro and if you share a passion for using commerce to solve many of the world's most pressing problems then this is the show for you Hello and welcome to episode number 92 of the Business for Good podcast. Thanks to those of you who reached out about episode 91 with Lisa Keefe, the editor of Meeting Place Magazine. That's M E A T in place. Also, of course, the editor of Alt Meat Magazine. And uh, several of you said that you were really interested in hearing what somebody had so, who was so steeped in the meat industry for so long was thinking about the Alt Meat industry. So I'm glad that you found that episode useful. And if you liked it, you will certainly like this one too because we are staying in the Alt Meat vein for a little while here. And so if you think about about it, like Lisa was talking about how she wishes that there was better whole cut products because for decades, the ultimate movement has focused on ground meats like sausages, burgers, nuggets, sticks, and more. That's because it's just a lot less difficult to create these ground products than a more structured product like a steak or a chicken breast. It's still difficult, but it's less difficult. Now, several companies, though, are trying to reach that holy grail of whole cut products, and one of them is chunk foods hailing from the holy land of Israel. As you'll hear in this episode, Almost gone was a guy who was just fascinated by chemistry. He tried a couple business ideas that frankly didn't take off before starting to make steaks in his kitchen by putting soy through a special kind of fermentation process. After many failures, he finally created something he thought was worthy of showing to investors, one of whom was interested enough that they put in $50,000. Fast forward to today and Amos has been making quite a lot of innovations in his process. He's making steaks that I tried and really enjoyed and is now overseeing a team of a dozen people helping him make those steaks. He has raised millions of dollars, and he claims that these steaks are going to be hitting U.S. shelves by the end of 2022. Time will tell whether that prediction pans out, and I certainly hope that it does. But Amos has an impressive story that offers a good reminder to never give up and that the most meaningful work of your life may still be ahead of you.
2: Amos, welcome to the Business for Good podcast.
0: Hey, Paul. Thanks for having
2: me. Yeah, it's great to be on with you. Greetings from California to Israel here. So glad to be talking with you. You have uh, really taken uh, much of the alternative protein world by storm because your company, Chunk Foods, was founded less than two years ago. We're recording this in the spring of 2022. And you were founded less than two years ago, but you're making products that really look very advanced. So let me just ask you, before we get into how you did this and why you did it and so on, what were you doing to Two years ago, like, what were you doing prior to Chunk Foods? Because I I certainly weren't uh, familiar with you. But what were you doing two years ago?
0: So two years ago, I actually lived in the U.S. uh, Moved there a couple years before that, and uh, you know, one thing led to another. Went to grad school in Boston, and then moved to New York to uh, join Ferrero, the giant chocolate company, as part of the open innovation science team that was based in New York. Um, So I worked there. On a bunch of uh, innovation projects in packaging, ag tech, food tech, biotech—really interesting stuff—and um, actually, you know, some of the things I saw there and some of the ideas led to the work on Chunk, uh, which hmm. you know happened uh, well um, during the fall of uh, 2020. Why? Why go to chocolate? What was the attraction for you? So it's it's a bit of a long story, but I actually got to meet the Ferrero folks uh, when I was at MIT uh, at the MIT Media Lab. Uh, working on one of the projects, so Ferrero is a you know, very large company that has businesses in, in different parts of the confectionery market. And one of their businesses is around um, is the Kinder Surprise, which is basically the chocolate eggs that uh, we, all of the you know, kids in Europe know. And some, now some kids in the U.S. also know in a different form. as the like Kinder Joy. It's a different product. Um, And I did a small project with them at the Media Lab, um, got to know the teams, got really excited about um, some of the work they do, and uh, got an offer to join the Open Innovation Science team, which seemed very, uh, very appealing, you know, working on cutting edge technologies, finding solutions for some of the supply chains issues that we see nowadays, and uh, many more uh, super interesting challenges. Um, So decided to take it and move to New York and join the team.
2: How did that present it to, to you? Um, so how did that present itself to you almost? So if, if you think about, like you said you went to grad school in Boston, so you were at MIT. What were you studying that you ended up getting this offer and that you're looking at supply chains and packaging and all these other things for a huge chocolate company?
0: Yeah. So I think, I mean, to answer that question, I probably should go a little, you know, back and kind of, uh, tell you more about my you know, career path because it was all over the place. I uh, started my career, uh, in cooking. I, you know, went to, uh, to, uh, a cooking school in London at the Cordon Bleu and thought that, you know, I'm going to work, uh, as a chef and become a chef. Uh, worked in a couple of restaurants, you know, did that for a while. And when well, at some point said, well, it's not really, Exactly what I want to do. I'm really interested in how in food and eating food and cooking for people, but I'm also really interested in how things are made and what are they made of. Um, and got really curious about the science behind things. So you know, I decided to to stop doing that. Um, Sign up for for school, Tel Aviv University, and decided to study chemistry. So I did that for a couple of years. You know, shifted from cooking to sciences. Um, worked as a as a scientist and led R and D in a couple of companies. And then at some point I was like, okay, so I'm doing science now, but now I want to turn that into something even more practical again. Um, and I heard about this you know, crazy program at MIT uh, called the MIT Media Lab, where it is, you know, there's a lot of focus on engineering and a lot of focus on working with sponsors, with these large companies that bring in real-world problems to the, to the university, and they work together to solve them and bring in you know, these crazy new technologies. So I decided to try my luck and, and you know, sign up for a second master's at the Media Lab. And this is how I you know, got to the Media Lab. Now, the way the Media Lab is structured, um, it, there are um, tens of sponsors that basically uh, that are large corporations like Ferro, Bose, you know, Target, and many, many others, Google, Facebook. Um, and they bring in some of the challenges or the things that they're interested in uh, and present them to the students and professors. and. Basically they form these interest groups, they form these collaborative projects where uh, students and professors work on that, some of these pro- uh, problems and also suggest you know, new creative ways to solve them or just new creative ways of interacting with the world. Um, and this kind of this collaboration between students, professors, um, researchers, and these companies, uh, really sparked my interest, and so at one point we were working on a project with Ferrero uh, around these uh, chocolate eggs that I mentioned. And there's a long history of you know why uh, Kinder Surprise chocolate eggs are not sold in the US um, and some other pro- um, products that were brought to the US uh, as a you know as an alternative to these chocolate eggs. But it's a very successful product in Europe, and most kids, you know, most people my age who grew up. Uh, grew up eating those and you know sharing the the joy uh, of you know finding a toy and assembling a small toy and you know eating great chocolate. So you know it was a childhood experience. It was um, a really interesting project. How can you bring these products to the U.S.? How can you make the toys uh, super safe? How can you make them more intriguing for kids? And that project, which was very successful, is going to lead uh, to a uh, launch of a toy you know, new toy category for Kinder Surprise in the U.S., Kinder Joy in the U.S., really sparked my interest and got me to know this amazing company. So then when, you know, they got to know me, I got to know them, and they made this offer to join a team that was looking into all these super interesting challenges around supply chain, around, you know, new technologies and ag tech and food tech. Um, it really sounded amazing and sounded like something that, you know, I may have an edge in because I've, done so many things around engineering, science, and also cooking and and eating food. So this this was kind of the background for this.
2: so what happened? I mean, you're doing toys, you're doing chocolate, and then all of a sudden, you're thinking, actually, I want to disrupt the meat industry. Like, what was it? Did you have an interest in in sustainability? Are you a vegetarian? Like, what was the the impetus for you to think, I'm not. I don't want to do toys. I don't want to do chocolate. I want to do meat.
0: Well, I think it's uh, again a couple reasons. I think um, I was lucky to move to the US in the summer of 2016. Which I think was a pivotal moment for for the whole industry. I mean, you had the you know the um, impossible and Momofuku collaboration, um, Beyond launched in Whole in Whole Foods. It was you know meat alternatives were all the rage, um, and you know I came from Israel, which is quite advanced, but still these things didn't happen here. And moved to the US, and suddenly it's all around. It's all around you. Um, got super curious. You know, they started. At, at, you started seeing the Beyond Burger in every cool restaurant and you started seeing it at Whole Foods. Um, and I got really intrigued by the, the offer and the offering and also the prospect of this really making an impact on, on, on all of us. Right. And then, you know, when, when you, when I went to the, the supermarket, uh, you know, I, I looked at the meat case or, you know, and, and I saw the, these, some of these products and I, I was thinking to myself, you know, why, why is everyone fighting for the, cheapest product in the meat case. Like, why are we not looking at the other products that are out there, which are, you know, the steaks and the roasts and, you know, what the the fish fillets, why are we not looking at the products which are, have a higher price point uh, where we could really make a difference because we will be able to sell the product at at price parity or cheaper uh, and then make the choice. A lot easier for people. I mean, people are very sensitive to price. This was my hypothesis. And I think time and time again, we see that in surveys. People are very sensitive to price. So I was thinking, you know, what if we could offer them the premium products that they like, but just offer a better alternative? Um, And another thought that I had was, you know, you you take the package from from the shelf and you look at the back and you look at the label and you see quite a lot of ingredients and some of them today are more familiar to people. But back then, you know, I, I didn't know many people who knew what, what methylcellulose was. Um, and I was thinking, you know, we're trying to take something like meat or fish uh, out of people's uh, uh, menus, or at least reduce the amount of product they, of these these products that they use. Um, and these things are staples, right? People are used to eating them and consider them as an ingredient. So we really need to make an offering uh, with whatever we, we offer that will replace these things. That is, that people will see as a healthy option, as a a good replacement for a staple. And that just seems like something that's harder to do when you have 20 or 30 ingredients than something that would have less ingredients. So this was, yeah, this was the motivation,
2: basically. So let me ask you a provocative question then, Amos. So if you think about, let's say somebody going into Burger King Mm -hmm. and they're faced with a choice, they're faced with a choice between a regular Whopper Mm -hmm. and the impossible Whopper what how, how many of those people do you think are contemplating the length of the ingredient list of the impossible whopper or whether it has something like methylcellulose as an ingredient versus other considerations that are on their mind
0: i think none or very few i think uh you just came you know you've just brought up the single best uh use case for these uh, products i think uh and to me it's a non-brainer like i would never eat a you know, a meat-based uh, Burger King again, because I think that the uh, the plant-based option is better. And I think it's, you know, it's obviously, uh you know, it's better in any, any single way. I think what becomes an issue is when people who are used to eating meat and fish on a daily basis, they eat, you know, they, they eat the burger once a week or twice, you know, once a month or twice a month, but they eat other types of meat. They eat, you know, they're they have you know, moms and dads and, and grandmothers and grandparents who 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 cook the food that they grew up on and they would want to cook the same kind of food for uh, their kids. And I think a lot of people are looking for something that's more versatile uh, than just a burger. Um, and when that, that becomes something that you eat on a regular basis, on a daily basis, then people are looking for something different. So I think as a replacement for something like a, a Burger King burger, I think what we have now is... Is perfect. And I think it's only getting better. But I think for the other use cases, we're still lacking. And I think we don't have good enough options, specifically around whole cut, you know, um, plant-based fish and seafood alternatives. Um, And the only way to convert people is to create different and better uh, options.
2: Yeah, sure. Um, I definitely agree. I think that the the only way people are going to switch is if they have something better that to switch to. Uh, that's pretty much going to be the only way. And I don't mean better from an ethical or a sustainability perspective, although that's, of course, extremely important for me and I presume for you, but I, I doubt it is for most people who are thinking about whether to buy a, a, a sirloin steak versus in the future, a chunk foods steak, for example. You, you mentioned almost the price issue and how the there's a difficulty getting to price parity with conventional plant-based products that are relying on the ingredients that they do. So first, let me ask you, why do you think it is that it's so difficult to get to price parity right now? And then let's get into what you're doing that you believe will enable you to actually quickly get to price parity with conventional meat. Sure.
0: I think, you know, obviously we, we still still don't manufacture. It. It's very large scale. Um, so challenges, uh, around supply chain are all, always going to be an issue until you, know, until you scale to a certain size and, and then you, you get different kinds of challenges, of course. But I think that the core issue with the products we see in the market today is that they're competing with very cheap animal-based products. Um, I think that when your starting point uh, is an expensive product so when consumers uh, compare your product to a more expensive product, and I think you mentioned that in your show, uh, um Paul, around you know uh, you know if someone were was able to make a plant based lobster, you know, and you would be able to compare that to the price of lobster, then obviously there's a lot a much bigger margin to be made there uh, where you can scale up you know more easily, there's more room to make error and more room to kind of build supply chains as you scale. Uh, while you know taking taking on some of these higher prices, but I think when you take when you take when you you're after something as cheap as a burger or a ground beef, which is I don't know the average in the US is probably around three point eight dollars a pound, or at least that was the price when I was when I lived there. Um, there's very very little room for you know for to, for margins, um, and that's why we still see uh, the leading uh, products at the price premium of about two x. So I think the starting point of having just like competing with a much more expensive products really allows you to be at price parity or even cheaper.
2: Interesting. So you're making an argument then by going after these whole cut steaks. Let's say that it's not necessarily that you your products will be cheaper than, let's say, Beyond's ingredients, but rather that you're just going after a category where the bar is much easier to meet because the initial starting competitor product is so much more expensive. That's what you're saying. Exactly. I mean,
0: we, we okay. are relying on on you know on commodities trying to work with uh, ingredients that are. Cheaper, but still great—you know, very, uh, very nutritious and, and, and of the best quality, of course. Uh, we do have less ingredients, which also simplifies your bill of materials, of course. And we we may talk about it a little later. We we're using fermentation to also you know give some umami flavors, which reduce the need of you know uh, very high amounts of natural flavors, which add obviously to the bomb, uh, to the bill of materials. But, yeah, I mean, essentially what you're saying is absolutely right. Um, if you're able to, if consumers compare you to a more valuable product, you're able to sell the, your product at a higher price point and And by doing so, absorb some of the associated costs and still make a margin uh, while selling the product at a price parity or potentially even cheaper.
2: Right. Yeah. You know, it's an interesting, um, it's an interesting thought experiment because right now the conventional wisdom is that if plant-based meat were cheaper, it would take up a much bigger share of the market. So plant-based meat today, you know, it's like less than 1% of the total volume of meat that is being sold pretty much anywhere, including in the United States. And, uh, Jason Lusk of Purdue university recently did a study where it was, you know, based on self-reported willingness to pay, but essentially, um, people said there, if the Beyond Burger were priced the same as a conventional, Conventional burger that 27% of them would switch, which is a, obviously a huge number to switch, 27%. Um, but I've wondered like, if you know, we have, for example, plant-based lobster, like you mentioned, or plant-based crab cakes or plant-based foie gras, these are all extremely expensive products. I mean, crab, is, some species of crab right now are going for like $30 a pound, not $3 a pound, but $30 a pound. And foie gras is generally like $50 a pound. And so if you create um, alternatives to them that are substantially less expensive, how many people would switch to them? And I don't know the answer. Like, it's an interesting thought experiment. Um, but do you know, like, at what point does the person buying crab cakes say, you know, as long as I get the same experience, I'm willing to switch to plant based because I'm going to save some money? And I wonder that with steaks too. And so I'm, I'm eager to see um, when you come onto the market what happens to that. We're going to get into that in a second. I will just note, you know, companies like Beyond are relying um, heavily on pea protein, of course. And, um, when I started my own company, the Better Meat Co., uh, just over four years ago, I, I was thinking a lot about pea protein, and I wondered, you know, would pea protein become more I- affordable or less affordable over time? And I didn't really know, but I thought it was going to be tough to see that price come down. And indeed, uh, pea protein prices have skyrocketed. They're way more expensive now than before, uh, despite the fact that they've become more mainstream. And so even in the last year or so, pea protein prices have more than doubled due to uh, drought and increased demand and so on. And so it's really hard to envision how they end up getting down to price parity with meat when the number one ingredient in their product just keeps increasing in cost. But I don't think you're using pea protein. Is that right?
0: That's absolutely right. And, um, you know, one of the strategic decisions we had very early on was to use uh, soy as an existing uh, commodity that has pretty established supply Mm -hmm. chains and a slightly better Mm -hmm. price point Uh, with all the challenges associated with soy, right? The legionicity and so on and maybe a little bit of that publicity. Um, But yeah, I mean, soy is... Frankly, a magical ingredient, um, and used all throughout the industry. Um, and uh, yeah, so we decided to make the decision to work with soy. We work mostly with soy flour, um, so less so with the isolates and concentrates, like most of our um, our peers. Uh, but we have this fermentation process that we use, which is quite interesting. Uh, that allows us to you know make the most out of these uh, these uh, this soy flour. And,
2: yeah. Great. Well, I'm eager to talk about that fermentation process because that really is the uh, the secret sauce. People have been using soy flour to make alternative meats for literally decades. Um, actually, even longer than that. Um, so, I want to talk about what makes you all unique. But before we do, you know, you mentioned bad publicity for soy, so I'm just going to use this opportunity just to state soy is awesome. <laughs> it is shen. It is shown to increase your muscle mass, decrease your risk of cancer. The myths around it are completely false. And it's a really great food. It's high protein. It's a complete protein. It's just a a really wonderful food. I eat like edamame and tofu pretty much on a daily basis. And here is my free idea for any entrepreneur out there who wants to start something. Have you followed Amos? do you know what liquid death is? That brand of water? Uh, Yeah, I heard heard about it. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So we all kind of laugh at it, but the company's doing pretty well and it's, it's just <laughs> marketing, right? It's just canned, it's just canned water, but it's this really funny marketing and people are really into it. Right. And so, you know, there's these myths around tofu and people think of it, oh, this is like either, either they think it's like, oh, this is food for women, not for men. Um, or for women, even they have like negative associations with it, but pretty much it's perceived by some people, um, you know, fallaciously as a, as food, not for men. And so what about if somebody did a tofu for men and get this? Here's the name of it. <laughs> you ready, Amos? <laughs> tofu. It's gonna be called brofu <laughs> and you know like this isn't, like, this isn't your grandmother's tofu and it's got you know like all types of images kind of you know like men flexing like doing curls with the with the bricks of tofu and you know like i could see like the guy from the ad finishes the the uh the brick of tofu and then he like drinks the juice from the carton <laughs> like all this stuff like that that's my idea so if anybody wants to start brofu i hope you'll do it and let me know you don't you don't have to cite me i'm fine but i, I want that company to exist so i'm a huge advocate for soy um i, I Think it's maligned and a very good food, and I'm glad that you're using it now. First, before you tell us what you're actually doing to soy, that's actually novel. What do you think about brofu?
0: I think it's a great idea, and I think there's uh, hardly <laughs> very few things that okay. are more manly than tofu. So you know, can't really understand. Yes, it. yeah, it's a, it's a great food. It's a it's a miracle food, um, and you know, I had that the
2: mom last night for dinner as well. So. I, very yeah. nice. Very nice. Good. Yeah. Yeah. All right. Good. Well, your, your, your biceps must be pumping. Man, because <laughs> it's a great way. It's a great way to build muscle. Um, all right. Good. Well, if uh, if chunk foods doesn't work, you can always do brofu. Okay. Uh, Thanks for
0: the idea. I'll, I'll keep it.
2: Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> okay. So let's talk about what you're doing, man. Like, I, I really want to know. So you have soy flour, and obviously, you know, don't give away anything that's proprietary. But I presume you're filing for IP, so it's all going to be public anyway. But like, what is the innovation that chunk foods is spearheading here?
0: So th- there are a couple of things there. I think you know some of the. Challenges associated with uh, soy in our industry are some of these green beanie notes that are associated with it um, And oftentimes, you know, people just say, you know, you need to mask the flavors You need to get, um, you know, to add a lot of uh, natural flavors to it to, to cover or mask it um, So one thing that we do which, you know We're really working hard on is to use the fermentation as a way to remove some of these uh, off flavors Uh, and get some uh, nice umami base uh, below the natural flavors that we add on top to really complement the flavor of the product. So that's one thing that we try to do. The other thing is really to create uh, structure. So, you know, what we see today in the market is obviously mostly in in the ground beef and and patty kind of uh, section is basically different kinds of, you know, uh, Granules made in different ways that are formed into into a patty with binders, um, but we don't have this directionality that's quite uh, quite dominant in in whole cuts uh, meats, right? So. so Meat is made of these fi- fibers that are bundled together into fiber bundles and then have this connective tissue that holds everything together uh, into a cut. And obviously, there's the intramuscular and extramuscular fat that kind of complements the whole thing and makes it uh, the steak that we, we know and we see in the supermarket shelf. Um, so, what we, we do is we try to replicate this structure by uh, creating, you know, re- replicating this structure, basically creating fibers and creating something that holds these fibers together. Um, So, we have a way to uh, form the soy flour into this um, unidirectional structure, basically something that has the shape of these fibers. Uh, We ferment that uh, with natural, um, you know, natural non GMO organisms. Um, And as a result, what we get is a solid cut that has directionality. We can control this directionality. Um, That cut also holds uh, water and fat quite well. Um, so we get a very moist and juicy product. Uh, and we do all that without uh, binders uh, like method solos.
2: Interesting. So and just to be clear, you know, there's various styles of fermentation. Sometimes when people think about fermentation, they're thinking about, you know, stainless steel fermenters that are filled with liquid and then you introduce organisms to it. You're not doing that kind of fermentation, though. So tell us about what exactly your type of fermentation at Chunk is all about.
0: Yes. So, you know, some parts of this uh, process are obviously proprietary, um, but the, the, as you mentioned rightfully so, uh, Paul, the, I think that, the, you know, two types of fermentation, generally speaking, two types of fermentation, one that's done in these giant uh, stainless steel uh, fermenters, either uh, biomass or, or, or um, precision fermentation. And then there's the more traditional fer- types of fermentation, which are essentially all versions of solid state fermentation. So a process in which you take a source of protein, it can be animal source, it can be like milk or meat, and it can be plant-based, like you know the, the soybeans that are used for making miso. And then you ferment them with different uh, organisms, either natural flora that is found on these, these ingredients or um, organisms that you add, basically that you inoculate the product with. So we uh, are... Closer to the, this category, so we're closer to the category of soy safe fermented foods, just like coffee and cocoa and bread uh, and some cheeses and some sausages and many other foods that we all, uh, you know, many of us consume on a daily basis.
2: Cool. So when I think about like solid state soy fermentation, what comes to my mind is tempeh. So you take a bunch of whole soybeans and you inoculate them with an organism called rhizopus and you let them basically partially digest those soybeans and it creates this cake, right? It's like a brick and you know you cut it open, you can see the whole soybeans that are in there. And then that white filament that is holding everything together, that is the mycelium. That's the, the rhizopus mycelium that is uh, essentially keeping all those soybeans intact and that's very different from what you're doing, though. Am I right about that? It's quite different. Yeah, it's quite different.
0: But you know, I think some of the foods that come to mind when one talks about solid state are definitely tempeh, you know, mm-hmm. uh, natto. That's quite fam- famous in Japan. Uses
2: using the right. sappalis and and many more bread, of course. So. Yeah. Ha- so, how did you come across this? Are you the inventor of this product? Did you think you're just going to tinker? Uh, you have a chemistry background, maybe you're going to tinker yourself and then see what happens. Uh, like, how did this actual process get invented here?
0: Yeah. So, I mean, I had this idea how to create structure with fermentation. Basically, you know, I saw a bunch of, uh, read a bunch of patents, uh, saw a bunch of companies doing really interesting stuff around fermentation and fermentation of different uh, plant materials. And, you know, I had this hypothesis, you know, there's a way to create structure. I had this idea and there's a way to use the fermentation process to slightly improve the the soy and beanie notes of uh, different uh, different uh, grains and legumes. Um, And I just started experimenting. So actually, you know, I um, looked up on Amazon, on eBay, started buying equipment um, and uh, retrofitted my Brooklyn apartment. Uh, Back then I lived in New York. Uh, and turned it into a small improvised lab, um, and you know between that small lab and our kitchen, I created the first uh, prototype. There were quite a few uh, terribly terrible tasting prototypes before the first one that actually tasted like something interesting. And that you know my my wife and I were tasting them regularly, and at some point she said, "Well, you know it's it's, it's quite it's quite good. When are you making this again?" Um, and at that point, you know something clicked. And I decided to send the couple samples to um, to investors I knew. Um, you know, and this was following you know conversations I already started having with the GFI in the U.S. and with other people, and kind of learning the field, and understanding what the white spaces are. Um, so one thing led to another. I managed to raise a very small check, uh, and this led to the the company. What is very small? It was a fifty thousand dollar check. Uh, it was a safe uh, from a fund called E14, which is a fund that supports the uh, greater MIT community. Um, and I knew these folks, so, you know, it was easy. Sent them a product and a couple of weeks later, um, yeah. you know, this turned into a, an investment.
2: Wow, that's really great. That's really great. So for those not familiar, a Safe as an acronym, it stands for Simple Agreement for Future Equity, and it basically is a way that early stage companies can raise some cash without actually having to start selling shares just yet because the equity will get converted when you do an actual uh, actual more conventional equity round. So that's really cool. So I mean, who who would have thought, or maybe you would have thought that just tinkering around in your kitchen would land you uh, somebody who believes in you at least to uh, to put fifty thousand dollars into your idea?
0: Yeah, you know, I tried a couple of times with other ideas before, and it didn't work. I think it's uh, really a matter of finding. You know, it's a matter of finding the, you know, the right thing. Uh, you know, looking back at the things I did, you know, when I did them, they didn't necessarily make sense. Uh, but nowadays, I really see how the dots connect, and you know how each and every experience uh, really uh, gave me something that is now part of the business that I'm building. Um, so very grateful for all these experiences. Yeah.
2: Well, I want to talk about the business that you're building, but just let me ask you first, almost, what's your motivation? Like, what's the thing that gets you out of bed in order to keep doing this? You know, lots of people have different motivations who are in this particular field of alternative protein. Some are in it because they really care about animals. Some are caring about sustainability or feeding the world. Uh, others just want to succeed, and they think this is a good business opportunity. Uh, there's other reasons, too. People are interested in public health or pandemic prevention. What is it that really motivated you? Like, obviously, you didn't come from a background of necessarily, you know, looking at alt protein or animal welfare or anything like that. Like you were in toys and chocolate. You said you had other ideas that presumably were not meat related that you were tinkering around with when you were in Brooklyn as well. So what is it that leads you to want to do this?
0: I think nowadays it's really about sustainability. I think it's something that kind of grows in you, you when you understand, you know, when you learn a field uh, as, you know, by, by, by learning that field, you'll learn all the problems that are associated with it. Right. So, you know, it, I think the initial uh, interest was just curiosity. Like, can we make something better? Uh, can we solve this challenge? I was interested in the challenge of solving something that was wasn't solved uh, until until these days, basically. Like, how can we address these other markets? But I think the the more I learn about it, the more I you know, I I I I read about it, the more I meet uh, you know founders and. I, you really understand the, the the problems, right? And I think sustainability to me is today the biggest driver. Uh, it affects the way I, you know, I try to live my life. Also, not really not necessarily only related to food, uh, and the way I see things. So definitely, uh, the biggest motivation would be sustainability today, um, and uh, also curiosity. Um, and you know, and last but not least, you know, always, uh, um, and this is kind of a personal note, but becoming an industrialist or like you know becoming someone who actually manufactures something uh, at scale and creates an ethical uh, product that people enjoy and doesn't necessarily harm the world, but does better. It's not something that uh, fills me with a lot of joy Uh, and it's something that I I, want to do and I want to do for the rest of my life.
2: Definitely inspiring. Uh, I feel you on that for sure. It's also interesting. Uh, there's a saying that is um, often, I don't know who originally said it. I first heard the author AJ Jacobs say it, but I don't think that he is the one who invented it. But since I heard it from him, I'll attribute it to him where he said that it's easier to act your way into a new way of thinking than to think your way into new, into a new way of acting. And so basically, you know, you could start out saying, hey, like I care about sustainability, therefore I'm going to go start this company. But really in your case, the opposite was true, that you have acted your way into a new way of thinking that sustainability is more important to you now than maybe it was a couple years ago because you have been engaged in this endeavor, wouldn't you say?
0: I think it was also always important. I think, you know, saying that something is important to you and actually acting on it is very different. And I think, you know, what this afforded me was a way to actually dive deeper into what that means to care about something like sustainability or animal welfare in the case of many other founders and so on. I mean, obviously I care about animal welfare, but this was not the motivation. So this is why I'm not putting that as, 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 a, as the main driver there. But, yeah. um, And I think once you realize that your actions can actually make a difference and that you can actually build something, you know, considerably large with uh, engaging other people and in the mission, uh, that becomes very different than just talking about
2: something or writing about something, uh, trying to really make a difference through action. Yeah. Well, speaking of making a difference, almost, let's talk about how you're building this. So you're tinkering around in your kitchen in Brooklyn. You come up with something that's like a prototype or a minimum viable product here. You get $50,000 in a safe as an early investment. So what happens next? You take that 50000 and what do you do with it?
0: It's a, it's a funny question because I basically continued doing exactly what I did before I had the money and just spend everything out of pocket. No, I, I mean, I'm trying to, so I, I've tried to look for a co-founder for quite a while. Um, and um, this was really at the decision point whether we're going to move back to Israel or not. It was, you know, kind of a couple months into COVID uh, and New York was uh, a bit of a scary place to be in uh, at the beginning of the pandemic. Um, so, um, you know, I started looking for a co-founder, um, had some engagements with people, hired some consultants to help with uh, some aspects of the business and and digging a little deeper into the feasibility of this thing. Um, and, uh, and then we had to move. So I had to move to, we had to move to Israel um, and I used the money to set up the company. So, you know, uh, hire a lawyer, um, incorporate, do all these things that that one needs to do um and then uh, and then started hiring a couple people um started the first uh, team members uh we hired a biologist uh, to do some of the work around the
2: fermentation then we hired a H- had you raised had you raised more money by that point i mean you hired a lawyer a biologist you're incorporating is that all coming out of that initial 50k so
0: um i mean we already started having conversations on a proper uh pre-seed round um which at that point was you know so i I'd, for the first couple of months, I'd say seventy percent of my uh, time was dedicated to fundraising, so to trying to raise more funds. Uh, and the other thirty percent, which was probably another hundred and thirty percent because I feel like at that point <laughs> that point in time I was probably working like 20 hours a day, uh, was dedicated to improving the prototype and creating samples. Um, so you know buying raw material, buying some equipment, um, hiring that biologist. Uh, we managed to get to an agreement with uh, the law firm, so we had to de- defer the payment. Uh, we're actually paying them now for the first time. <laughs> so, uh, you know, we managed to kind of save money. But, yeah, hiring that consultant, um, doing some of these things was what we were able to do with the 50K. And it was it got a little stressful. You know, I worked out of my uh, – we moved to Israel. I worked out of my parents' house. We still didn't have an apartment. Um, you know, basically working out of my old equipment. I brought my equipment with from Brooklyn with me. Um, so yeah, it was, it was a challenging time, but we didn't spend that much. I tried to keep the, uh, you know, the burn rate very, very low. Um, yeah.
2: Yeah. That's good. Yeah. It reminds me of the saying that, uh, Ben Horowitz from Andreessen Horowitz says, where he said, this that if you start your own company, you will sleep like a baby because you will wake up every two hours and cry. And so, you know, and it, it's like, you, you see this, uh, you, you see, that there is a highly causal relationship between the amount of money in your startup's bank account and the amount of cortisol in your veins. (laughs) And it's like, you know, and it's an inverse relationship. Like, and, and whenever people say, oh, like money isn't the answer to your problems, you know, for what i found talking to a lot of startup founders is that actually it really is the answer to a lot of the problems that people face, that having more money makes it uh, much, much easier. And so what happened then? So, you know, obviously you've raised a lot more than 50K now. So you went to work, you started creating more and more products and then what occurred?
0: So, yeah, I mean, there was a bit of a learning curve how to, you know, how to make, you know, how to make a, a food product, right? So it's very different to make product in your kitchen and, and put it in a vacuum bag and send it to people and to make something that actually can, can keep in the fridge or in the freezer and, you know, maintain its uh, color and flavor and nutritional um, profile and so on so um, yeah, we basically, I you know, I was pitching all day, you know, all day and all night, uh, you know, with different time zones. You just wake up early in the morning and just pitch all the way, uh, all, all the way through the night, and then prepare samples. Wake up at five a.m. to prepare samples because uh, to send them all over the world because I didn't really know how to even ship stuff. And you know, we had to. It had to be it's perishable, so it had to be frozen or kept chilled. And at that point, we just didn't really know how to do that well. Uh, with different shipping companies. So, um, yeah, so anyway, we did that for a while. Then I had uh, my wife's sister uh, at that point was looking for for a, a job. So I said, you know, why don't you come and help me? Um, so she started working with me and she's now, you know, leading all our operations um, and, you know, started kind of attracting uh, talent. And uh, so people joined, um, the product improved, uh, and then we managed to secure uh, enough interest uh, to have E14, who gave uh, uh, me the, that first small uh, safe, uh, to basically lead the round. Uh, so we managed to we negotiated uh, the, the the terms and we raised uh, 1.75 million dollars on another safe. Uh, this time with valuation and you know proper a proper safe with valuation and discount
2: and so on. Um, nice. What was the what was the valuation on that one point seven five million dollar round? Yeah,
0: I prefer not to not to uh, share these numbers, but it was you know it was market market rates at that point in time. Uh, okay. It was you know decent. Good. I thought it was you know it was great. Um, you know it's always a little lower than you than you wish, but it was great. And <laughs> and, and we had a bunch of really great uh, angels as well. And you know if I can say one thing is that you know angels. I mean all of my invest. I you know I think all of my investors are super super i mean they've helped a lot but angels and it doesn't matter how big their check is they've just they've just been great they i have you know some of my mentors today are people who didn't do a very large check but have just been meeting on a regular basis every week <coughs> or so and it just helped me build this business from the ground up so um
2: yeah yeah it's one of the things that i find uh, most interesting about the idea of investors because so many people who I talk to who are like thinking about starting their own companies, they think of investors as just a source of capital. And what they don't think so much about is that actually, you know, there's capital out there and sure you need it, of course, but you really want investors who are going to provide more than capital, who are going to provide you with advice, with connections, with information. Like you don't know everything that you need to know. You don't know even a small fraction of what you need to know most likely. And- when you have investors, they're pretty uh, people who are literally invested in your success. And why not utilize them? It's like having members of your team who aren't out on the field. Like you want to get them out on the field because they put them to work. They own part of the company, so put them to work and make sure they can increase the chance that one day their shares are going to be worth something.
0: I totally agree. I mean, I couldn't agree more. And I think I think it depends on the on the specific stage of the company, right? Different investors would be, bring in, you know, they have different flavors, and they would bring different value at different stages. But I think the early stage investors really, they're the ones who would help you uh, raise the next round. They'd help with introductions. They help they, they help so much. Uh, and the problem yeah. with the first, you know, especially for me as a first time founder and, you know, solo founder was also, it's not so much about the stuff that you, you know, the, the unknowns. It's the unknown unknowns, right? There's so much stuff that you don't know that you should know. And people with a lot of experience just tell you, you know, this is what you should do now. Did you think about that? Did you think about this? Just super helpful to have these uh, mentors.
2: Yeah, yeah, for sure. So where is the product now? Uh, I ate it recently. As you know, you were kind enough to send me one of your steaks. And uh, my colleagues and I tried it. We really liked it. It kind of reminded folks, especially our chef, of like a flank steak. And it was really good. Um, it was definitely not like something else that I had uh, had before. And so it seems like you're really on to something. And I'd love to know, where's the product now? How much can you produce and when will you start selling and where will you start selling? So uh,
0: most of the work in the last, uh, I'd say six to 12 months was focused on scale up. Uh, We have a product that we're pretty happy with. It's obviously V1 and it's going to continue improving all the time. Um, And the work now is really on taking in the process that we've developed and scaling it up uh, scaling it up cheaply enough, so with um, food grade equipment, that without building too much fancy equipment or too, you know, spending too much on capex, um, and setting up that setting that up in a food safe facility uh, where we can actually make food and sell food out of. Um, so uh, today we stand at about, you know, we can make tens of kilograms per per day. Also, depending on how many employees we have, but that's more or less a scale. Uh, We're building now a pilot facility uh, with about ten times that capacity, uh, which will be ready by the end of this year. And uh, so,
2: so, so by the end of 2022, you will be producing hundreds of kilograms a day of steaks. Exactly. Great, and I presume that's in Israel. So
0: the first pilot is going to be in Israel. Uh, We're going to export that. Produce to other countries uh, with a focus on the US market. Um,
2: Why? Well, I mean, aren't there people who want to eat it in Israel? Enough.
0: Uh, unfortunately, Israel is Israel is quite <laughs> small. No, I, I mean Israel is quite small. I think also the um, habits of uh, Israelis are quite different uh, when it comes to hmm. you know consumer products. So uh, and branding is obviously very different. So in order to really explore the market and understand how people respond to these, this is essentially a new category that doesn't really exist in retail yet. Uh, we want to work with the target audience from the get-go, and not start with a smaller market that's quite different, and then try and you know utilize the the learnings that we had and and, and bring them to a different market. We want to start working with uh, the U.S. market from the very beginning.
2: Okay, so if that is so, why why not just come back to the U.S. and and build a plant here? So,
0: I think the idea is to have this dual structure, where uh, which is what I started with. So I, I saw the mother company, Chunk Foods. U.S. is a U.S. company, and we have this daughter company, the Israeli company, that does R and D and engineering for the Malik company, um, and I think that structure works pretty well. We're going to have the commercial side and manufacturing in the U.S., uh, but the iterations, the R and D iterations in Israel are quite quick. Um, I think it really works well with the kind of the Israeli character of you know moving quickly and breaking things, um, you know, and just like the 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 like one or two degrees of separation between. me and every other Israelis, because it's such a small uh, country. So this really helps with, you know, getting to the right people quickly, uh, planning and and moving on, moving really quickly with uh, product development. So I think there's benefits to both things. And we're going to have this dual structure where engineering and R&D happens in Israel. And then we take this technical package and we bring it on to the US where the manufacturing side and the commercial side can really uh, scale that up and start selling the product and put them on the supermarket shelves.
2: Nice. Very nice. So I'm looking forward to that. Can't wait. Hope you make it all the way over to California so that I can go out and be one of your first customers then, uh, (laughs) Amos. But uh, how many folks work at the company now? How many are working at Chunk Foods? So uh, we're 11 now.
0: Okay.
2: And I I presume you're gonna need a lot more than that. Um, So you raised, you know, uh, nearly $2 million to date then. So are you going to be back out in the market seeking to raise again sometime in the near future then?
0: Yeah. So we actually, I mean, we haven't announced yet, but we just closed a very significant round uh, three weeks ago. Um, Congratulations. thanks, uh, Thanks. So yeah, we will announce that, you know, in the coming weeks. Uh, And we're going to use these funds to expand. So, uh, yeah, we're definitely planning to start hiring both in the U.S. and uh, the U.S. and also uh, expand the team in Israel, um, hoping to grow to about 25 to 30 people uh, in the next year. year Nice.
2: Nice. Oh, congratulations. So let me ask you, you, you've been on quite a ride. I mean, just two years ago, you were tinking around in your kitchen, you tried some ideas that didn't work and that nobody wanted to invest in apparently. And then you finally uh, made something that somebody wanted to invest in. Now you're overseeing a team of about a dozen people. You've raised millions and maybe even tens of millions of dollars by now. Uh, it's quite a change in your life from two years ago to today. And just a, a good example of how you really never know what fate is going to bring for you in your life. So. Have there been any resources almost that have been useful for you in these past couple of years in this roller coaster ride that you're on that you would recommend to somebody else who's in there thinking, oh, I, I really am impressed by what this dude has accomplished. Um, maybe I could do something like that, too. So has there anything that you would recommend that was useful in your journey so far?
0: Yes. I mean, I, you know, first of all, I just want to say, you know rely on your friends and family as much as you can, because, uh, you know, that's more important and more helpful than any, any book or podcast or anything like that that I can recommend. Right. I mean, well, uh, uh, aside
2: from this podcast, but the other yes, ones for yes, sure, except for Paul's podcast, of course.
0: But I mean, yeah, I mean, <laughs> okay, I got, think, it. I think this, this roller coaster is something that's, that's quite challenging and relying on the people you love and the people who can support you is, is really, um, the only thing that really helps, but I think you know there's there's a lot of uh, things that help me a lot. Um, you know, in making less mistakes, uh, I want I want to think that they help me like make less mistakes or at least know what to expect. Um, so when it comes to um, just you know the technicalities of what the deal looks like, you know, term sheets uh, and so on, um, I love the the book uh, Venture Deals. Um, it really helped me a lot uh, and helped me know what to expect. And even it helped me a little bit with like the negotiation of uh, the round that we just closed. So I highly recommend that to any entrepreneur that's kind of looking into a uh, priced round. Um, another book that I really love, um, I actually read that in school, but uh, kind of, you know, I keep it next to my bed and I read, read, it in, read in it uh, from time to time is Never Split the Difference. I think it's a, uh, you know, it's a great book about negotiation it's it's a lot of fun. There's a lot of like you know background stories there, but there's also quite a few you know things that you can learn about um, having a, a you know a negotiation where you don't necessarily uh, uh, the 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 positive result is not necessarily uh, you know winning in a the, in, the, in the simple sense, but you know actually getting uh, you know getting getting a, 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 to a situation that's, that's beneficial for both sides. Uh, usually, is the the win win situation is really uh, what you're looking for. Um, yeah, so these are kind of the more, um, technical books, I'd say, uh, obviously, you know, there's, this huge number of, of podcasts that I, that I listen to. I think, you know, your podcast is obviously uh, incredible, Paul, and I think you bring amazing guests. Uh, it's always very inspiring. Um,
2: especially, especially in this, especially episode, obviously. In this episode, of
0: course, no, but I've, I've, yeah, you know, you get yeah. to actually get the feel of like who the other founders are, you know, other, um, you know, very interesting characters and so on. But I also think that, you know, I think I learned a lot and, and, and there's a, there's a book that I, you know, I, I always love uh, talking about that I actually wanted to, you know, mention here because it's, it's, it's not a, you know, a, um, it's not a technical book. It's a, it's it's a novel. Uh, it's called the periodic table um, it, and by Primo Levi. And it's a collection of short stories that kind of, you know, they it's an autobiography through these stories, uh, and each one is named after a chemical element. And it was that book was the reason why I went to study chemistry. And it's a book that I, I you know keep on reading uh, again and again. Probably read it four or five times, and I think it's uh it more than anything, it's a life, you know, it's lessons in life. Um and I oh, very cool. recommend it more. So
2: Awesome. Hey, by the way, almost did you hear about why it didn't work out after the date between the biologist and the physicist?
0: <laughs> no.
2: They didn't have any chemistry. <laughs> uh, yeah. I, I, I was going to tell a periodic table of elements joke, but I thought I might be out of my element if I did. <laughs> um Thank you. Thank you. Uh, Okay. Well, it's cool that you're so into chemistry. Let me just ask you if you weren't doing this or maybe even if you were, but you wish that there was some other company almost that existed to do something good in the world. What would it be? Like you're doing Chunk Foods. You're committed to this. You're going to be on this ride for some time. It seems. What else do you wish existed that maybe somebody who's listening might be able to go take up the mantle and start on their own?
0: Yeah. I mean, uh, I tried to think about it for a little bit before the before this episode because there's so many interesting challenges right around sustainability and 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 specifically now I think sustainability is what uh, all founders should think about whether their startup actually focuses on a sustainability related question or just if they do something else and sustainability is just something that they. Uh, you know, they could affect in one way or another. I think in, if we're talking, I think since, you know, we talk a lot, a lot about food here, you know, th- there are two things that I'm very passionate about when it comes to food. I think uh, fat and sugar are two unsolved challenges in the food industry. Uh, you know, there are so many startups, so many corporations are working on replacements for different fats on sugar reduction solutions. And I think there's just, you know, there's such a blue ocean there uh, that I encourage uh, every single founder who's interested in these uh, things to to work on these huge challenges. It's huge markets uh, with huge impact on people's health and on sustainability. Um, and then another thing that I'm super fascinated about, you know, I don't I don't know if I have a, an interesting uh, angle on it, but you know, there's so much salt water around us, um, and on the other hand, there's such a shortage in in uh, drinking water and in water for irrigation. You know, I had this vision once of growing uh, growing food and, and crops and so on on the on water and using the sun, the basically free energy from the sun, to desalinate this water and use it to, for irrigation. So, you know it's a bit of a dream, but, you know, if someone wants a bigger challenge than making whole, whole muscle-cut products out of soy, mm-hmm. you know, maybe mm-hmm. I should try and pursue something like that.
2: Yeah. Well, I know Israel was a leader in desalinization, uh, um efforts uh, for obvious reasons being uh, by the Mediterranean and without a lot of fresh water. Um, And it was an Israeli, um, who Simcha Blas, who invented drip irrigation as well, by the way, which has now saved billions of liters of water all around the world since he invented that. So maybe there's some Israeli out there who's going to (laughs) figure out the most effective way to actually desalinize water, and we'll have a a major breakthrough uh, for sure. But uh, for now, I'm really glad that you're focused on whole muscle cuts uh, made from soy, Again, I can't speak highly enough of soy, and I'm also speaking highly of you and Chunk Foods Amos. I hope that you all succeed. Can't wait to see your product get out on the market. And congratulations on the fundraising success, the actual product innovation success that you've had so far. And I can't wait to see what happens in the next chapter and chapters of your particular journey here.
0: Thank you very much, Paul, and thanks for having me. It was
2: a pleasure to be here. Thanks for listening. We hope you found use in this episode. If so, don't
1: keep it to yourself. Please leave us a five-star rating on iTunes or wherever you get your podcast. And as always, we hope you
2: will be in the business of doing good.